Let's read together from Mark 1, 1 through 5 and verse 9. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. We will be in uh, Mark chapter 1, finally, <laughs> get into the book of Mark. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the power of your word. We just ask now as we study and as we read the things that you were saying and doing when you lived in, in this world, um, help us to learn and grow from those things and help us to understand them and Lord, help us to practice them. We ask it in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Um, the, we're singing that uh, on Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, and I grew up in a small church for the first 10 years of my life, a tiny little church uh, in Mexico, and one of the things that the, the Mexican people do really, really well is sing. I mean, when they sing, they sing with all of their voice, and, and, and a bit more even. And so uh, when a friend of mine came back, came up to the States, he knew a little bit of English, and uh, we stood up to sing some songs, and he was blasting it out, and he got to this song, and he didn't quite get it right. He sang every single time, all other ground is stinking sand. <clears throat> and I wasn't about to tell him. <laughs> it was just way too much fun to have him just keep singing away. Anyway, that was totally for free, and it didn't have anything to do with what we're preaching on this morning, but every time I sing that song, I remember him. <laughs> Anyway, um, many years ago, there was a man named Dr. Ryu who was a scholar in, in the ancient languages, especially Greek, and he was asked to translate the, the, the book of Homer into modern English. And for If you remember the little booklets, the Penguin Classics, they would kind of abridge and give you a whole story, but in a little bit shorter form. So anyway, he did it, and it was well-received, and people recognized his scholarship, and so a little bit later... The, the publishers came to him and said, you know, we really want to do a Penguin Classic of each of the Gospels of the Bible. Now, this man had been an agnostic all of his life. And so when they, when he, when they asked him, they said, would you do a translation for us? He said, okay. And he agreed to do the translation, started into the process. And even though he'd been a lifelong agnostic, the more he worked on the Gospels and the more he worked at translating them, the more he came to understand the truth that was there and eventually became a Christian and went on to live the rest of his life as a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the power of the Word of God. He wasn't looking for anything. He was just doing a job. And yet God took that very real Word of his and made it an impact on his heart and brought him to the point where he came to grips with the fact that this is true 
and I need to believe. And he did. What, a, what an amazing thing when we think about the Gospels. And as we look at the book of Mark, we'll bring in occasionally some of the others. But what we know about the book of Mark is this. It was the first Gospel written. Uh, it was written by John Mark, and it was written probably in Rome. He was in, in Rome with Peter, who was there and was teaching. And as far as we know, um, it's even possible that Mark was translating some of what Peter said into Latin. That's one of the thoughts that's out there. And that uh, as Mark is doing this, and he's listening to all the preaching and all the sermons that, that uh, Peter did about Jesus and his life and all those things, um, at, at some point then finally uh, he was getting ready to, Peter was getting ready to go somewhere else, and the, the, the Roman Christians said, listen, you can't leave us like this. You need to put these things into a written form so that we can read them and look at them and understand them and, and continue to learn what, what they're all about. And that is the that is the thought that uh, that's exactly what he did was to translate the or not translate but to take the writings of Peter, group them in certain ways, and we'll talk about that as we go along, and and write them in a language that the Romans could understand. Uh, now, don't forget, this is John Mark who uh, abandoned Paul and and uh, and Barnabas on the first missionary journey halfway through. Um, this is the one who caused the split between Paul and Barnabas. Because Barnabas took John Mark and Paul took Silas. <clears throat> but it's also the John Mark that Paul wrote to Timothy about and said, bring Timothy because I need him. He, he will be helpful in the ministry here. So you see that there's a whole lot of things that have happened in John Mark's life. And probably a whole lot of it having to do with Barnabas who said, no, I'm not giving up on John Mark. I'll take him and we'll go and we'll do some ministry together. And so as time went on, obviously John Mark became uh, someone who was very capable in, in the way that he was able to live and help both Peter and Paul in, in their ministries. Now, very quickly, I'm sure you may have seen this, but each author of a gospel wrote differently because they had a different audience in mind. And if you've seen this before, uh, just hang on, it'll only be a second or two. Uh, Matthew wrote to the Jewish people specifically about Jesus as king. And there's a lot of Old Testament quotations, and, and he does the, the genealogy that he does starts with Abraham. So there's all kinds of things having to do with Matthew. But the point that Matthew's trying to make is that Jesus is the king, he's the promised Messiah. And then you've got Luke comes along, and, and he... Um, he shows Jesus as the Son of Man, the perfect man. And, and he's, writes, he's writing in Greek, but he's also writing for people who don't know a lot of the Old Testament scriptures. And he's showing the humanity of Jesus. And if you go to his genealogy, it goes all the way back to Adam. So here you've got the perfect man. Um, and then you've got, in, in Matthew's case, you've got the, 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 the Messiah that he's talking about. John comes along, and John pre presents Jesus as the Son of God, uh, fully, fully God. And, and, and of course, John 1, 1 starts that, doesn't it? And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so that's where John uh, comes from. But Mark was the first one, and Mark was presenting Jesus as the servant, the perfect servant. And if you think about it, there's no chronology at all. There's verse 1, and then he jumps right into what Jesus is saying, teaching, and doing. And, and one of the reasons for that is a servant, you don't care about a servant's uh, pedigree. You don't care about his genealogy. So it was not necessary. John or Mark was writing to people who 
had no clue about the genealogies and didn't care. What they wanted to know is, why is this servant, the suffering servant or the perfect servant, however he's being portrayed at that point, what did he do? What did he say? We want to, that's what we want to know. And so that's the reason that as you're going through this, uh, you find out that the, the key verse for this is in Mark 10.45, where Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And how was he going to serve? And give his life a ransom for many. And so this is John, or I'm sorry, I keep saying John, but this is Mark. Um, John Mark, if you will, <clears throat> and he's presenting all of this information. And the biggest thing that matters is, okay, what did the servant do and why? That's the question that Mark kind of answers as he goes all the way through his gospel. And, and it, Mark's favorite word, it's translated in different ways, but it's uh, immediately. And immediately they did this, and immediately they did that. So it's like, okay, well, there's no pauses, there's no braces, full speed ahead, let's talk about Jesus and what he did and what he said. So we're going to jump into verse 1 of uh, the book of Mark. In the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, so thinking through the beginning of the gospel or the good news about or concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so he, he, here's this beginning. There's this good news. God became man. God came and dwelt among us. All of that is the reality that Mark is wanting to present. So it's about Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ. And again, think about how he got that name. Jesus was the name the angel said. You are to call him Jesus. The name Christ comes from the fact that that is the Greek term for Messiah or the anointed one. So as we look at Jesus Christ, it's, it's a very special name if you're looking at what he's being called. Um, and then also then the Son of God, the one and only, the unique relationship that he has with the Father, the fact that he's the, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And so in the, in the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so it's the good news the gospel is the good news is being uh, portrayed and being talked about. And everything that Jesus does and says is going back to the good news. The good news. Um, here, here's a quote that I came across this week. I really thought this was precious. Jesus is God brought into focus for human eyes. Think about that. So he's fully God, but for us to be able to see him, he had to be fully man. And, and what an incredible thing that the God of all the universe um, took on human form so that he could communicate more clearly uh, what God is all about and what he wants for us. The next verse, they jump right into some, um, some prophecies that have been written about the Messiah. Uh, in verse 2, it says, It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Now, it's interesting. He says it is written in Isaiah, but if you really go back and look it all up, it's part in Isaiah and it's part in Micah. But when they combine prophecies like they do here, many times the writers of that day would list the name of the most important one. And so in Mark's thought, you know, Isaiah was the major prophet, Micah was maybe the minor prophet. And so he combined the two quotes there and said Isaiah gave us this information. Um, 
Now, so how was John preparing the way for the Messiah? So here it is. We're talking about John for, for a little bit. He says, and so came John, and so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Um, the whole Judean countryside, and you got Jerusalem and you got the, all the area around, that's the Judean countryside. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And talk about a revival. This is huge. I mean, John is on the other side of the Jordan, close to where Jericho was, and, and he's there and he's preaching, and, and people are just coming, just coming all from all over the place. They're coming to hear what he has to say, and, and as he, they are touched by the message and they realize that they have, they're sinful, they are baptized with the whole idea of repentance and being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is just preparation because Jesus is going to come and it's going to go way more than that when it comes to how someone's sins are forgiven. But for the time being, this is what's going on. And John is saying, hey, you know, the Messiah is coming and we need to continue to, to, to prepare our hearts for him. Um, and so he was baptizing in, in that region. Um, <clears throat> He was preparing people by pointing out the fact that sin needed to be dealt with and it needed to be forgiven by God. Now, it's interesting. It says the whole Judean countryside and all the people from Jerusalem came. One historian estimates that over 300,000 people were impacted by John the Baptist during this time period. That's a lot of people. Especially when you're off in the backside of nowhere, and yet they're coming from Jerusalem, and they're coming from all the Judean countryside. And we find out later that also people were coming from Galilee as well. So from all over the place, people were coming to hear John. Now, one of the biggest reasons is that it has been 400 years since they heard anything from God. 400 years. And so there's that time of silence from Malachi to Right now, when John the Baptist is finally on the scene and proclaiming, uh, proclaiming the good news. Um, John, it tells us in verse 6, wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Uh, one of the reasons I never wanted to be called as a prophet was this right here. I mean, you know, I, I could probably do the camel hair, but I'm not sure I'd want to eat locusts and wild honey. Anyway, so John's living very simply. He's living in the desert, and he is wearing clothing that reminds people, if they've read their Old Testament or if they've listened to the priests teach, Elijah came dressed the same way. So here John the Baptist comes 400 years after the 400 years of silence, and he comes looking and sounding like Elijah. And he is preaching passionately. He's preaching powerfully. And people are listening and can't wait to come out and hear him. And so he wore all of that stuff that Elijah did, and he, he was, in a sense, preaching prophetically like, like Elijah did, but also just preaching with fire and with passion. Um, and he was focused on God and helping people to focus on the fact that the Messiah was coming. Um, verse 7, he says this, uh, and this is his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And it's interesting because in that time frame, if you had servants, 
the lowliest servant would be the one that would meet you at the door and take your sandals off and wash your feet so you could enter the house. And John is saying, I'm lower than the lowest servant. I can't even take his sandals off. That was how he saw himself in relation to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so he, he gives us this, this imagery, this vision, and then he goes on to say, I'm baptizing you with water here in the Jordan, but when he comes, he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And that's a whole nother thing. That's, that's another level. Uh, the baptism of water was symbolic, but when Jesus comes, it was going to be real, and the Holy Spirit would come upon them. Um, and every believer would be baptized in the Holy Spirit at the moment of their conversion. And so John is saying, hey, the Messiah is coming, and, and I'm not even worthy to take, take off his sandals, and, but I'm preparing the way for him. And, and um, on one level, what he's doing is pointing to the Messiah, and he is saying, who, am I, who I am is not important, but what I say and who I point to, that is important. So me, I, forget about me. I'm not even fit to tie, untie the sandals of the Messiah when he comes. But remember, I'm pointing you to him. That's my job, is to say he's coming, and he's coming very quickly. And so that was his job. Uh, he prepared the way for the Messiah. He, he cried out, and people all over the place were getting ready. Um, <clears throat> so John's baptism was, uh, was a baptism of repentance with water, uh, the Messiah would do something totally different. And, and John took a custom that wasn't really practiced in Israel even that much. It was practiced when someone became a proselyte. They would then be baptized by someone and, and become Jewish. The Jews had all kinds of washings and things they had to do, but it wasn't like a baptism where someone would actually take them and, and dip them down. Um, but that's exactly what, what John was doing as he called attention to what was going on. Now, there's an implication here. Um, start with the, the verse 1 again. In the beginning the, of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, I, I just, again, that's a very simple statement. And, and it could be a title of the whole book if you wanted to. It's an introduction and a title and a whole bunch of other things. But it's in the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, who is who? The Son of God. Um, I came across this quote. The, the, the word gospel refers to the preaching about Jesus Christ and God's saving power, which is brought about through the death of Jesus Christ for all, all who believe. So when we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about the good news. We're talking about the fact that, that uh, we're thinking through the whole issue of Jesus coming, living a perfect life, and dying and paying for sin, rising and ascending into heaven. The gospel is all of that. It is, it is the truth about Jesus Christ and how that makes a difference. Uh, it's the truth about this, this message that we, we need to know and understand. And, and so he preaches it very, very clearly. Romans 1.16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to the, for the salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. So it's interesting here. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not embarrassed by the gospel. Why would I ever be embarrassed about the gospel? The gospel comes into someone's life and heart and changes them, changes them for good. Why would that be something that would impact me or, or embarrass me in some way? Uh, he says, you know, the words of eternal life, they're freely offered to everybody. That's the gospel. And all who are condemned, if they believe, can receive 
the gospel of eternal life. And so the gospel is the good news, and it changes lives, and it changes destinies, and gives hope. That's the gospel. There's always hope in the gospel. Now, as we talk about the good news, one of the reasons it is good news is because of the bad news. So we'll go here very quickly. The bad news, if you will, is that everyone has sinned and is separated from God. There's no way of looking at that in any other shape or form. The bad news is everyone has sinned, they're separated from God, and are condemned already because we're born under condemnation. The good news is Jesus came along, lived, died, and ascended into heaven so that when we place our faith and trust in Him and what He has done for us, we're no longer under condemnation. We are forgiven and we're free and we can have that relationship with Him. So, saved, born again, becomes believers, Christians, when we admit that we're sinners because we're separated from God. That's how we become a a believer. And we turn from believing that he has offered us forgiveness. Uh, We believe that Jesus died. We believe he paid for our sins. We believe that that is the way that we can come to God and that he saves us. So the the question that, that is asked, what must I do to be saved? Well, Paul could answer that very, very easily. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved in your house. That's, that's the answer. And, and that's the truth that's being presented here even as, as we get into the book of Mark. There's, there's the whole idea of the good news and having to believe in that good news. So there's an old song that said, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And so Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. Salvation is offered to everyone who will believe, but it's because of what he did. He came, lived, died, ascended into heaven. Now, there's another implication as well. And it is this. John did his job well. Stop and think about that. His job was to point to the Messiah and to point as many people as possible to the Messiah. Now, he did his ministry, and, and Jesus is baptized, and, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But even for a while after that, there was almost a year that they ministered in that area together. Uh, Jesus may have been more in the Judean countryside, and John may have stayed where he was on the other side of the Jordan. But they both worked for almost a year in those areas, um, and John all the time was pointing people to Jesus Christ. So he did his job well. And, and, and this, um, let's go ahead and put this, this quote up there. John's job was to prepare the way and then get out of the way. Isn't that awesome? That was his job. Okay, I'm getting it ready for Jesus. Okay, he's here. Up. Okay, I'm I gotta go. And, and that really was all what the, what it was all about. Uh, now for a while, like I said, they ministered, but John was always pointing people to Christ, always pointing them to Jesus Christ. So the religious leaders, they come to John and they, they want to shut him up and make him go away. And so they say, who, you know, who are you? Why are you doing this? Who gives you the authority? So, you know, who are you? Tell us. And, and John 1 20 and 21, he says, I didn't, he did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Christ. If you're asking and wondering whether or not I am the Messiah, not a chance. I am not the Messiah. Uh, and they asked him, so are you, are you Elijah? Because there's prophecy talking about Elijah coming. And, and they also thought that there was a prophet that would be coming. That was the thinking of the day. And he says, no, no to both of those. So the religious leaders of the day are coming to him and saying, if you're the Messiah, you need to tell us because we need to, need to do something about that. And he says, nope, that's not who I am. So they ask again, well, then who are you? If you're not the Christ and you're not 
Elijah, you're not the prophet. Who are you? John one twenty three. My favorite answer of his. I am a voice. I'm a voice. I'm a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths. Isn't that awesome? So, you know, who are you? We, we know you as John. We know that you're baptizing all these people and you're calling people to repentance. Who are you? I'm a voice. I'm in the wilderness. And I'm preparing the way for the Messiah. That's who I am. My name doesn't matter. I'm a voice. And my voice is being lifted up loud and clear to say, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. So again, here he is saying, hey, it's, it's, it's not me. I'm the messenger. What you're looking for is the message. And that's coming in the person of the Messiah. And so after John had baptized Jesus, because Jesus comes along and, and gets baptized, um, and then the next day John saw Jesus, 129, John 129, coming toward him, and he said to some of the people that were with him, some of the people were his disciples, look, over there, that's the Lamb of God. That's the Lamb of God. And he pointed that out. And he wanted them to see and understand, it's not me, I'm here to do this. There he is. There he is. Look, there's the Lamb of God. Go follow him. And we know that some of John's disciples did exactly that. They went and they followed Jesus. Of course, like I said, there was that time of kind of uh, coexisting, uh, overlapping ministries in the Judean wilderness and, and on the other side of the Jordan and at some point, there started to be that shift. After all, he was pointing everybody to Jesus and saying, there he is, go follow him, go listen to him. And as he's doing that, people are moving in that direction. And some of his disciples are concerned. He said, look, there's a lot of people going over there, and, and we have fewer than we used to have. And, and John's answer in 3.30 is great. He must increase, I must decrease. How cool is that? <clears throat> This is a fiery, passionate preacher who has touched the lives of thousands. But his job was to point to the Messiah. You know, he was supposed to prepare the way and then get out of the way. And that's what he's doing now. He's moving and, and, and getting out of the way. It's interesting when you see famous people, athletes or politicians, public figures, it's interesting how many of them have a hard time saying goodbye. They want to stay in that focus and in the limelight as long as they possibly can. Not John. Not John. John said, there he is. There he is. Go follow him. Let's move on to uh, <clears throat> verse 9. So people from the Judean countryside, people of Jerusalem were coming to John, all of that. And, and it's at that time, in verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And one of the things that, that comes to mind, or the question that comes to mind is, okay, so he comes and he's baptized by John, and this baptism was a confession of sin. And Jesus didn't have any confession of sin. Well, no, he didn't, but the nation did. And like many of the prophets of old, they would confess 
their own sin and the sins of the nation. And Jesus could go down into the water and, and identify with the sins of the people and, and, and make it very clear as time went on that he, that's why he came was for the sins of the people. And so John baptizes him. And on one level with the, the voice coming from heaven, because that's, that's what happens in verse 10. As Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw the heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And so you've got this happening. And, 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 and Jesus looks up and the Holy Spirit's descending on him. And then a voice says, You are my Son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Wow. It's the very start of Jesus' ministry. And his Father in heaven breaks into time and space to say, you're doing a good job. You're doing a great job. I'm pleased with you. So you've got the baptism of Jesus takes place. You've got God speaking from heaven to Jesus. Mark presents Jesus as the servant, and and this servant is God's son. And and yet, this servant is going to be moving into more and more service. That's why he came. At once, it says, verse 12, the Spirit sent, and that's a, not as good a translation. It should be uh, the Spirit drove or compelled him out into the desert. And so he comes up out of the water. The Father speaks and says, I am well pleased. And immediately, immediately, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. Um, and so he goes into the wilderness. And he was there in verse 13 in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Now that's all Mark tells us about it. Matthew and Luke tell us a lot more if you want more of the detail from there. But the reality is this. He was tempted. And that verb for being tempted was a continuous action. So it wasn't like Satan came along and said, okay, yes or no. No, it was the whole 40 days. There was ongoing, constant Constant testing, constant tempting. Um, Matthew and Luke tell us about that. And, and, and one of the things that's important here, I think, to remember is that, you know, he was fasting for these 40 days. He was being tempted for these 40 days. He was alone during these 40 days. Uh, and yet here he is. Uh, I came across this quote that I thought was helpful. The, the word tempted means to put to the test to see what is good or evil, strengths or weaknesses, to see which of those exist in a person. And the Spirit compelled Jesus into the wilderness where God put Jesus to the test, not to see if Jesus was ready, but to show that he was ready. He was sent into the wilderness. He was tempted by Satan all this time. And of course, you've got... In, in Matthew, I think you've got the three places that they tell us the exact temptation, but Jesus was not tempted in any way to, to give in to anything that was sinful. And so he passes that test and shows and proves, I am the Son of God, I am the Messiah, and I'm ready to go. So just kind of an implication here. Um, think about where Jesus was tempted. 
And it wasn't inside of the temple, and it wasn't uh, at his baptism. It wasn't someplace surrounded by people who could hold him up in prayer. And it, it, he was by himself. He's in the wilderness. Um, he's in he's in a location, and, and and he may have even moved around. But this is desolate. This area, and so he's there. He's not eating, um, and he's he's you know, maybe tired, he's alone, hungry, vulnerable, all of the physical things that we would experience, he went through those things. He wasn't some superhuman being that didn't need to eat or drink or sleep. Those are things that Jesus had to do. And so Jesus is in a very vulnerable position as he's being tested by Satan himself. Um, Hebrews 2.18 tells us, because he himself suffered... When he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Isn't that a a great thing? Stop and think about that. When we're going through some struggle and we're being tempted and we go to the Lord and we pray and we ask him to to help us to, to go through this in a way that honors him, we're not going to someone that has no clue what it's like. Jesus lived it, went through it, and he went through all of these temptations at his weakest point physically, and without sin. That's the incredible part. He suffered, and he was tempted, but he's able to help us because he went through without falling into sin. And so when we go to him, we get the help, and we get the strength that that we need. Um, I think one of the things that's important here to remember, I'm going to put it this way, Jesus gets us. He knows. He gets us. He understands. Um, he, 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 knew, he knew what it was like to be hurting or weak or overwhelmed. He knew what it was like to be sad when a friend died. And that's why we know that we can go to him because he really does get what's going on with us. He does know and understand and he can step in and give us the strength that we need. And that's what Hebrews 4 is all about. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet without sin. So, we have a high priest. He's gone through it all. And yet what's, what's happened is that he went through it all without suffering in any way, and giving into the temptation. And because he's been through it all, he can sympathize with us, he understands us, he knows that we're weak, and he knows that we cannot do this alone. He understands that there are times we are desperate, and that we cannot make it without him. That's why we have a high priest who sympathizes with us, and who knows what it's like to go through these things, and yet without sin. And so what an incredible thing. And, and, and so then you go to verse 16, and, and we have a high priest that says, but let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why do we approach the throne of grace with confidence? Because we are told to do so, so that we can receive mercy and grace and find help in our time of need. So when we're tempted and we're struggling and we wonder how we're going to make it through, that's when we go to God, and we ask for his strength and his help. Now, we can refuse. We can say, no, I got this. I, I can handle it. Yeah, no problem. I, can, I don't need any help with this temptation. Uh, that would be arrogant and, and dangerous on our part, but we could do that. 
Uh, the reality is, without God's help, we will not make it through the temptations that come at us. Now, I'm going to just kind of think this through a little bit with you. Under Old Testament law, the sacrifices and offerings were offered for, uh, you know, forgive sins and all that. And once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. So he'd go from the outer court, and, and he had the blood of the, lamb, of the lamb with him, and he'd go through the first part of the sanctuary into the Holy of Holies. And what's there? The Ark of the Covenant, and what's on top of the Ark of the Covenant? The mercy seat. And what does he do? He sprinkles blood in there, uh, and he does that every, every year. Now, when Jesus died, he ascended, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Where's he sitting, do you think? <laughs> it's called the throne of grace. Jesus is sitting in the throne of grace. That's why Paul says, let us approach the throne of grace. Why? That's where Jesus is. Why do we approach the throne of grace with, with confidence? Why? Because that's where Jesus is sitting after he finished the work of redemption. And we go to the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And, and, and what's the mercy all about? Uh, yeah, Lord. I blew it. I want to confess the sin I've done. And, and, and the grace, again, is that God's pouring out lavishly on us His favor in our time of need. There's no work that's too small. There's nothing that we can come to Him where He would say, you know, why are you bothering me with this? That, that doesn't happen. It may be something that nobody else would think is a big deal, but it is to me. I go to the throne of grace. Because that's where Jesus is. And I, I say, help. Help. I need your mercy. And I need your grace. No matter what sin caused it, it's confessed, forgiven, and gone. And our relationship restored and our strength to move forward is given to us again. Let's move on to verses 14 to 20. And I'm going to do this very, very briefly. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and put that map up there if you would, okay? So after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Now, between verse 13 where Jesus has gone in, into the wilderness. In verse 14, um, <clears throat> there's a year. Okay, there's a year there. And we find that, actually, that whole year is covered in John 1 through 4. And it's called the Judean ministry of Jesus. So he's working there simultaneously or kind of cooperating with the, the work of John. But at some point, because of John telling the King Herod of Antipas that he didn't have his brother's wife, he gets thrown in the dungeon. Now, it's interesting to me um, that at that point in time, Jesus then starts to say, okay, ministry down here in Judea is going to be over for now. I'm going up into Galilee. And we start in chapter 1 of Mark to see all of the ministry that he's doing in Galilee. Verse 15 tells us this, the time has come 
The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And so there's that, that whole idea that this is the fullness of time. Jesus is saying, hey, the Messiah is here. It's me. And, and, and this is what God has promised, that, that I would come at this time. And, and so he's preaching that, and he's telling them about the redemption and the restoration um, that they can have with God. And, and, and all of this is being presented um, to the people of Israel. He continues to talk to them and tell them and, and calling on them to repent and believe the good news. That The good news being Jesus came, and it hadn't finished yet, but Jesus came for a purpose, to live, die, and ascend into heaven. Now, what do we take away from all this? Well, essentially, once John was arrested and is in Herod's prison, there is a shift completely from the, some of the ministry of John to, to the ministry of Christ. And it's important for us to always remember this. They didn't get the fact that Jesus wasn't going to set up a kingdom. His disciples didn't get that. Most of them thought, yes, this is Jesus the Messiah. Okay, kick the Romans out. Get that throne out. Let's get moving on the kingdom. And that wasn't the purpose for his first coming. His first coming was to live a perfect life, die for everyone, ascend into heaven, and to be there interceding. The second coming will be to set up his kingdom. And so not knowing that, and that was a confusion that most of the Jewish people faced because they didn't see that gap in between. Um, and so the longer John was in the dungeon, the more I wonder if he didn't say, what is going on? I mean, Jesus, let's go, let's get on. And in a sense, he does do that. In Luke chapter 7, verse 20, he sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus a question. So Luke seven twenty. John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Underneath that is, if you are the Messiah, well, get on with it. I'm in prison here. He didn't understand that wasn't the second coming yet. This was the first coming. And, um, and so he asked that. And, and Jesus, all that Jesus does is say, just look around and watch. And Jesus cured many people, verse 21, of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits. And he restored the sight to many who were blind. And then verse 22, he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you've seen and heard. Why? All of those things were prophesied things that the Messiah would do. When the Messiah came, he would do all of these things. He'd heal diseases, heal illnesses, kick evil spirits out, restore sight to people that are blind, raise people from the dead. That's what the Messiah was supposed to do. And he was doing it. So on one level, Jesus was saying, don't give up. Don't worry about the fact that the Messiah isn't here yet. I am. I'm here. And just hang on to hope, John. It's not going to be much longer. On one level, I think he was saying to John, John, you did a great job. You were faithful. You didn't give up. You just kept preaching. But remember, I am who I said I was. I am who I say that I am. And you have done well. And then at some point, not too long after that, John <clears throat> was beheaded and entered heaven to see his, his reward there. 
So we're going to pause there and pick up there next week, but just remember, we have a high priest who wants us to come to the throne and bring all of our needs to him. That's what he wants. So let's make sure that that's what we do as we struggle this week, or maybe we're not struggling. Maybe we go to the throne just to praise and worship. But whatever it is, that invitation is open for all of us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your word. We thank you that <clears throat> you came and that you lived and that you taught and that you impacted the lives of people while you were here. And we thank you that you also died and then rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And Lord, help us to remember the gospel. That's what it is. And help us to remember to come to you with our struggles and our hurts. Help us to remember to come to you in praise and worship. And help us to remember to come to you for strength to keep on going. Thank you, Lord God, for the hope that we have in you. We praise you. We worship you. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen.